0: Three, two, one. Cue music.
1: This is Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Hello once again. Welcome to your weekly online dose of entertainment reviews presented by me, Chris Coleman, and my very good friend,
0: Alex First. Greetings to you, Alex. Sir, bigger than Ben-Hur today. Absolutely. They've spent lots of money redoing one of the greatest movies ever made, Claiming 11 Oscars. Why would you do that, Chris?
1: Well, this is the thing, Alex. They've spent lots of money to do this, and I therefore have lots of questions that we will get to by degrees. We're also going to look at a civil war drama uh, uh, and a stage show of, and I think I can say this, a stage show of possibly the worst movie ever to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Am I close to the mark there, Alex?
0: Well, it may not tickle everybody's fancy, shall we say that about it? However, that doesn't mean the state show will be exactly the same. I'll tell you more towards the end of this podcast.
1: Okay, we will get to that by degrees, but let us start with Ben Hur. As you mentioned, it won 11 Academy Awards. It was Charlton Heston at his absolute prime, and we have discussed ad nauseum almost, the, uh, the, the perils of remaking much-loved movies. What about taking that to the extreme and remaking one of the greatest movies of all time?
0: Well, and not only that, getting a director who has done movies like Wanted and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter to be at the helm of this one, was that a wise move? His name is Timur Bekmambetov.
1: It's and an interesting move, a brave move, perhaps. A
0: brave move, yes, that's what I was going to say, brave. Screenwriters are Keith Clarke and John Ridley. And this is the epic story of Judah Ben-Hur, played by Jack Houston, a prince falsely accused of treason by his adopted brother, Masala, Toby Kebbell, who is an officer in the Roman army. And Ben-Hur is stripped of his title, separated from his family, also from the woman that he loves and forced into slavery. And he spends five years, row, row, row your boat, for the Romans. (laughs) You make it
1: sound like a picnic.
0: (laughs) Anything but, I assure you. And then he returns to his homeland to seek revenge. Instead, he finds redemption. That's it. That's the story. Based upon Lou Wallace's novel, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ... Also featuring Rodrigo Santoro as Jesus. He does a pretty good job, actually. Morgan Freeman, they've grayed him a bit. They've given him some chops.
1: Mm. And
0: he's the man responsible for giving Judah a second chance. Let's be honest. Morgan Freeman can read anything, and he's compelling. He's got a great voice, that man, hasn't he? Just wonderful. He does. He can play God, and he can do that with aplomb. He can, I think he, pound for pound, he just measured up against anybody and you just long to see him in movies. Anyway, you could certainly say that the emotional heart of this picture, Ben-Hur, has not changed because human nature hasn't changed. So the idea of vengeance versus forgiveness, that storyline, I reckon that resonates just as strongly as it did in 1959. But it still needs to be well told, Alex. It does. I mean, it's relatable on that level a wrong man seeking redemption. The writer John Ridley wanted to make the personal conflict between former best mates just as tense and memorable as, remember, the climactic chariot race in the Charlton Heston version.
1: Hey, if you haven't seen, by the way, and I'll just throw this in, if you haven't seen the 1959 version, you really should. Oh, yes, yeah.
0: exactly. And it was such a compelling film on so many levels ahead of its time so yeah I question whether they needed to ever do it again but that's just me the the director here Bek Mambatov says in many ways we still live in the Roman Empire and what he means by that power greed success they still rule the world and people try to achieve everything in harsh competition and only few realize that true human values are collaboration and forgiveness So Jack Houston, well, I think he's pretty good. He he brings the necessary gravitas to the role of Judah. Toby Kebbell, he's no slouch as masala either, establishing then the brother-versus-brother centrepiece of the movie, relatively straightforward. There are quite a number of tense action pieces, not the least of which is this cruel and unusual punishment dished out to Judah when he's forced to row along with dozens of other prisoners captured by the Romans. Intense close-up cinematography and sound as well. It almost becomes too much for the senses, you know, because it's moving camera, all of those sorts of things, and some people don't like that at all. Then, of course, there was that chariot race, in which combatants try to control four horses each at pace at the same time trying to take each other out. And, of course, it comes down to Judah versus Masala, with the population baying for blood. I, I wasn't sold on the incidents that happened along the way on the track, or really on the coming together of wheels, you know, that brings one or another down. Mm -hmm. It was shot over 32 days at the same studios, I believe, that they shot the original in Rome. And it involved seven teams of horses surging, but it was not as impactful. And lots of CGI, special effects. I wanted that wow factor, but it was missing. It really was missing. That is obviously a criticism. But my biggest criticism was the ending. I was quite engaged by, let's say, four-fifths of the movie before it lost me in the final act. After so much hatred and bad blood, for Judah to suddenly forgive in the wake of Jesus' selfless act seemed to me to be a bridge too far, the way that it was. They just quickly dealt with that. Mm -hmm. And as far as I was concerned, it lacked credibility. It undermined what had gone before it. So Ben Hurst circa 2016, not surprisingly, is not a patch on the original. But unlike other reviewers who've totally panned it, I don't see it as totally unworthy. I just see it as unnecessary. Hmm.
1: Let's 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 discuss a few things at this point. Let's have so, some let's have some fun here. Ben Hur, twenty sixteen version cost, from what I've been able to tell, about a hundred million
0: dollars. Yeah, it was it was it was over the hundred million.
1: Yeah. Mm. The, the the tracking that i've had a look at for it they reckon its box office is probably only going to pull in 75 to 80 yep it's
0: it's going to be a
1: failure yep yeah. yeah, it is going to it's going to run a loss here's the interesting part compare it to ben hur 1959 now bear in mind 1959 to make a movie for 16 million dollars
0: was you know, a horrendous amount of money. Yeah, but, transpose that to today's dollars and, yeah, you're up well above the $100 million mark, of yeah. course.
1: Here's the best part, though. The gross for Ben-Hur in 1959 was about $70 million. So they're both going to pull in, within about $10 million of each other, the same amount of money. One's going to be still regarded as the greatest movie or one of the greatest movies of all time. The other will be regarded as a failure.
0: Yep. Exactly, and this is where it's a hell of a risk that a studio takes to put so much money into a movie that was so brilliant first up. And I don't regard it as a safe bet in any way, shape, or form. I I honestly think it's foolhardy to do that. I mean, okay, if you're going to remake a movie that was a modest success, well, fair enough, you you may be able to improve it. How can you improve Ben-Hur the original? The, the short answer to that is you can't. And so why even try?
1: Well, I think or, to take or, it on, they've shown incredible chutzpah, Hutzpah, however it is correctly chutzpah. pronounced. hutzpah. Yeah, I think they've shown you know, uh, massive cojones. But I'm just wondering, does this mean that some of the other untouchable movies might be starting to register on the radar? I'm thinking, you know, what? what's to stop someone now from saying, well, they've had a crack at Ben-Hur... I'm going to have a crack at remaking Gone With The Wind.
0: Well, what's to stop it is the box office receipts. It's basically saying, why should we do this, risking everything, risking a program for the studio, saying you are, you are dumb for doing it in the first instance, because you're more than likely going to lose money on it. What studio wants to lose money?
1: I'd love to actually try and compile a list, you know, of the movies that should be untouchable. Because for oh, mine, that, for mine, yeah. Ben Hur would have been pretty close to the top of that list. I would put Casablanca there. Would be another one. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. You know, you'd have to have gone with the wind. You'd think Star Wars, the original, would be there. Although there are many people who say Star Wars Episode Seven is effectively a remake of Star Wars because there's so much in common in the storyline in there. So, you know, there is an argument for and against there. But it would be an interesting exercise to compile a list of the movies that should never be remade.
0: Well, I'm actually... I've just Googled list of film remakes, Okay, Mm -hmm. So, just to sort of... I mean, I'm I'm just going to pick these out at random and they, they list them in alphabetical order. And a lot of those that I'm seeing are not movies that you would have heard of in the first instance. But, okay, so let me see whether I can come up with something. Ah, all right. So they made La Cage Fall in 1978. Oh, in the... I know, and they... I know, I
1: know the remake. It was The Birdcage, the Robin the Williams remake, film. Yep.
0: Which was very, very good. Mm. So it can be done. But I don't think that they would have spent anywhere near the amount of money that they've spent on remaking Ben-Hur. Right? So there's an example of, yeah, okay, and it was relatively close together. We're talking about 18 years apart, Mm -hmm. one to another. I'm trying to pick out ones that you may have heard of because there's a lot here that you probably wouldn't have. I've I've
1: just found a fabulous website, by the way, called ranker.com, R-A-N-K-E-R, and one of the lists that it has on here, it has lots and lots of of lists of all sorts of things, one of the lists it has is movies that should never be remade. I will list list their top ten in a minute, but but fire another couple from your list at me first.
0: Breathless. There, there's a movie that was made with Richard Gere in yeah, it. Yep,
1: yep. 19- great right, right movie, yeah.
0: Loved in it. In 1983, yeah. it was made by a very fine director initially, Jean-Luc Godard, in 1960. Okay? So there's a there's yeah. another. I'm, I'm picking out better art. I, I, I've got one which I suddenly thought of straight off. Yeah. Kate Fear. Wasn't that a great movie? The Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. Right with De Niro and Nick Nolte and Jessica Lange and Juliette Lewis. So that was, that was the that was a terrific movie. That was made in ninety one, and the original movie came out in nineteen sixty two. All right, so you can, it can be done. But and, but the, the thing
1: that's in common there is that the original movie for each of those, and I'm sure it's the, it's the same deal for 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 most of these, is that the original movie wasn't a massive box office smash.
0: Yeah, exactly, and the dollars that they would have spent would be far below what they've spent on Ben Hur. So I, I think it's about taking educated risks, and that's where I think they failed here. And also, let's be honest, none of the players are household names, none of the stars. You, you might argue that if you get a name star, because you're spending so much money anyway, you may have a greater chance of success. You know what it comes down to, though? It comes down to the script. And Absolutely. if the script's not good enough, and this we've said this many times, it doesn't matter how good an actor. If you don't have the material to work with, then it's not going to happen. It's, it's just not going to work. So, here, okay, here's a movie that was better in the original form than in the sequel. Remember Fame? That was a terrific movie. Oh, it was.
1: Yeah, and they and they remade it not so long ago.
0: Correct. Yeah. So, and 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 the original was much better than the the sequel. So. Yeah, I, but uh, okay. This, here's a, here's the ultimate example. One of the, one of my favourite movies of all time is called Fatal Attraction with mm-hmm. Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. Yep. That came out in 1987. There was a British television film which was called Diversion, and that was the original. Most people would never have heard of it. So there you go. insane. That, yeah, that, that'll. Now, what, what about the, your, this website that you found? Okay, this list. Now,
1: this list comes from ranker.com. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll arrange for this to actually be thrown up on our, our Facebook page, which if you search for movies first on Facebook, you'll find it. Uh, here are the top 10. This is a publicly voted thing, and you can actually go and vote and, and move things up around as well and, and rank it according to your own. Preferences, but here are their top 10 out of gee, how many have they got on their list here? I'll just hang on, scroll down to the bottom. They have uh, north of 60, they have a uh, it looks like 100 here. They have they have a top one, uh, actually, have 99. So uh, they have 99 here movies that should never be remade. Uh, they start with Forrest Gump, You're right? Forrest Gump at one, Big at two, The Godfather is three, The Shawshank Resem- Redemption uh, four. Uh, they-
0: Let's stop there. You're right, The Godfather. I mean, that's an untouchable, absolutely. And Shawshank Redemption, considered to be one of the greatest movies ever made as well. Both of those, I think they rank one and two on IMDb in terms of the public's view of those films as being the greatest films ever made.
1: You're probably right. You're probably right. Uh, Number five, The Silence of the Lambs. Six is Gone with the Wind. So there you go. There was my question, Gone with the Wind. Oh, yes. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, Back to the Future is seven. Dirty Dancing is eight. Nine is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ten is E.T., the Extraterrestrial. And I've got to give you number 11 because I reckon I could give you 100 guesses and you'd never get it. Mm. I will say that it is a Billy Crystal
0: movie. Oh, When Harry Met Sally? No, it's The Princess Bride. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. uh, Because I would say When Harry Met Sally should be an untouchable. That's my favourite musical, sort of comedic, romantic-type film. I thought that was lovely.
1: Well, what you're going to have to do, I think, I'm scrolling down to see whether it's on here at a very quick look. No. And I can't see it on this list of 100. So you'll need to go to ranker.com. We'll put the link up uh, on our (laughs) Facebook page. You'll need to go there and add it as the 100th suggestion.
0: Uh, thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, oh, I'll give you one more to leave with. The okay. Little, little Shop of Horrors, the the Frank Oz directed picture that was originally made by Roger Corman in nineteen sixty.
1: And am I remembering correctly, Alex? Little Shop of Horrors, the original version was one of the very first movie appearances of Jack Nicholson.
0: The original. The original. The... Yes, 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 yes. I'll tell you what,
1: you start reviewing our next movie free... Oh, did did you give Ben-Hur a score, by the way?
0: No, I'll give it a six, which is far more than my contemporaries, who other reviewers have given it ones and twos. But I I thought it wasn't unworthy, and that's the reason I've done so. So, yeah, let's move from there on to our second movie for the week.
1: Hang on, but before we we move on, Jack Nicholson mm. was indeed in the original version of Little Shop of Horrors. He had a bit part as Wilbur
0: Force. Is that good stuff? Well done. Thank you for searching that through for me. Good, good. All All right.
1: right. Now, let's let's move on to Matthew McConaughey's latest offering because he is speaking... We've we've spoken about a number of hot names in, in recent episodes. He is a guy who has been hot in box office terms Gee, it'd be 20 years now, wouldn't it? He is on an
0: absolutely massive role. Well, in particular, in the last 10 years. I mean, he's made some... Because he was considered a lightweight. Mm. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people dismissed his ability to make a decent movie. And, of course, since then, he's, he's proven them wrong. I mean, if you have a look at Matthew McConaughey, not everything he's done has worked as well as, as others. He's He's, of course, winning the Oscar catapults anybody. It doesn't guarantee full, full-term full success from here on mm. in. But Dallas Buyers Club was amazing. So, I, I mean, the, the movie, the year before that, he made a great movie that came out and it was in one cinema and word of mouth then propelled it. It's, it was called Mud. Mm-hmm. If you haven't caught Mud, it's it's absolutely worth, worth catching. So I'm just having a look at... He's now made... He's got 58 credits to his name and he's already in in terms of after Free State of Jones there's an animated film called Cubo and the Two Strings which has also just come out. He's also completed another movie called Sing. He's in post-production on Gold. He's in post-production on The Dark Tower. They can't get enough of him. I mean that's you know again it's a sign of and he's probably in terms of age I mean firstly he looks good and he was born in sixty nine. Okay, so born in sixty nine. So what does that make him? That makes him. It makes him
1: way. younger than me, Alex, and that it upsets does, me greatly.
0: It <laughs> makes it makes him forty six at the moment. <laughs> it
1: right? makes him so, just younger than me. It disappoints me. oh uh, you look at look at his filmography. You you spoke about a few things, but let's just go back uh, and I'll, I'll just sort of dot point through here. You mentioned Free State of Jones. He was in Interstellar. I know Interstellar got bagged by a lot of people. I loved it. it. Yes, you had to concentrate, and I was lucky that I, I actually caught it on an, on an international flight, so I was able to sit down and watch it from end to end twice, and I thought it was a fabulous movie. He was in The Wolf of Wall Street. You mentioned Mud. He was in Magic Mike, which was hugely popular. Uh, we Are Marshall, one of the most understated and underrated films for mine of the, of the first decade of this century. Uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, really...
0: Hang on, let me let me add the Lincoln Lawyer, which I thought was a good film. Yep,
1: yep, the Lincoln Lawyer. But we've got uh, How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, which was really puff comedy, but mm. and that's what he was known for. Uh, a, a long time back. Uh, Ed TV, which suffered by being out at around the same time as The Truman Show. Yes. So Ed TV...
0: Prob- I liked Ed TV, you're yeah,
1: right. I liked it. It probably deserved better, but it was just out at the same time as The Truman Show, and The Truman Show was, in cinematic terms, far better. But Ed TV was, again, good light, uh, good lightweight stuff. But going back to 1997, he played one of the lead roles in Contact alongside Jodie Foster, and at that point, he showed that he could do the serious stuff, and that is that is nineteen years ago.
0: And he was also I, I, one guy I spoke to really liked him in Rain of Fire. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people would not have have seen him in, but he uh, he made another movie that got I, from recollection got roundly panned. Uh, this was called Sahara. Do you remember that with I, Penelope Cruz? I don't
1: remember Sahara. I've got to confess, I'm not a huge fan of Penelope Cruz, so it probably wouldn't have been high on my list.
0: Yeah, that was a bit of a shocker. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Oh, and and there was another one. I remember that they absolutely slated, and that was with Kate Hudson, and it was it wasn't good. Fool's Gold. Do you not remember oh, that? Oh,
1: and that was because they tried to recapture the magic from How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days.
0: Yeah. yeah. So you know. So that in other words, and this was only eight years ago. So this is what I'm saying: it hit or miss. Mm. But of late, of late, there've been quite a number that have done reasonably well. He also did an, a movie with Jennifer Garner that didn't didn't set the world on fire: Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past. That was in 2009. OK, so, yeah, I thought he was very good in Magic Mike, by the way. I I, I liked his role in that one. That, well, that was just me personally.
1: We should probably get onto Free State of Jones because people are wondering, should they go and see this thing at the movies and we've yeah. kept them on hold for too long.
0: Well, it's based upon writer-director Gary Ross's original screenplay, it's 140 minutes in duration, rated MA in Australia. Action drama, extraordinary story of a little-known episode in American history. By the way, while we're talking about time, I didn't mention to you that Ben hurs two hours and three minutes. The original was over three and a half hours, so you know they they'd cut it back, but it still didn't work. Yeah.
1: Get, maybe met, it suffered because it was cut back, because and you can't they couldn't explore some of the stuff that maybe they should have been able to.
0: Well, I yeah, I, I don't just put it out there. Yeah, fair enough. Well, this one, Free of Jones, concerns a guy called Newt, N-E-W-T, Knight. This fearless Mississippi farmer led an unlikely band of poor white farmers, also runaway slaves, in an historic armed rebellion against the Confederacy at the height of the Civil War.
1: Is this based on a true story? Yeah, it is. And, I mean, right. it's a
0: story that I, and I dare say a large number of people, won't have heard before. It juxtaposes and complements the narrative with flash-forwards. So... The original story is set in the 1800s and then you've got flash-forwards to the 1948 trial of the state of Mississippi versus David Knight, David Knight being the great-grandson of Newt Knight. And it's the trial of him, David Knight, and his common-law wife and former slave, Rachel. So McConaughey plays star of the piece Newton Newt Knight, larger-than-the-life figure whose dedication to justice and equality inspired this popular rebellion against all odds and obstacles. And it also features Gugu Mabwatha-Raw, and she was in Concussion. She, she plays Newt's confidant, eventual common-law wife. That's, that's a key role in it. Kerry Russell from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, she's the first wife. And you've got somebody from The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1 Called Masala Ali as this runaway slave and a guiding force in the uprising. They're the key players. Gary Ross, who by the way was responsible for the Hunger Games, Sea Biscuit and Pleasantville, based this movie, Free State of Jones, on a decade-long research project, independent research, from a story conceived by him and Leonard Hartman. So It's 1863, the Civil War's raging, and in Mississippi, which is the second state to formally secede from the Union, Newt, this poor yeoman farmer from Jones County, is a medic in the ambulance corps of the Confederate Army. Knight doesn't own slaves, as is popular at that time. He's morally opposed to secession as well as to slavery. Nevertheless, he enlisted rather than being conscripted, in part so he'd be assured of serving in the same regiment as his family and neighbours. And as a medic, he tends to the sick and wounded rather than battle union soldiers, whose political ideology concerning the war and slavery he agrees with more than those of the Confederacy. So when Newt's 14-year-old nephew, Daniel, is killed at his side in battle, Newt has had enough. He's demoralised by the carnage and the numbing inequity of what's known as the 20 Negro Law. Now, get this. Sons of wealthy owners of 20 or more slaves are exempted from the military, right? So if you own slaves, (laughs) can you believe that that was actually a law? Oh, that's just bizarre. I I mean, I I shake my head. I I wring my hands in disbelief. The equality, the injustice of all of this. So Newt makes this fateful decision to take his nephew's body back home to his family for burial. And when he does that, when he walks out on the army, he becomes a deserter. (laughs) And that's, of course, the starting point for trouble and the struggle that followed. So that's what this is all about. And Matthew McConaughey, look, he's ever the leading man. He presents this strong, clean persona as a champion of the people, an advocate for justice and equality, somebody not afraid to take matters into his own hands. He is a leader of men. Gooboo Magatha Roar is shown as a very sympathetic character. The horrors of war, the treachery of whites against blacks are deeply distressing, just as they should be when you're seeing it in a movie. The Free State of Jones is also a history lesson with detail about which I I was not familiar. I was less comfortable with the depiction of that second story I spoke about, that of Newt's great-grandson. Suddenly, that courtroom drama was introduced, and then almost, it seems, at random, it was revisited. As it made up very little of the overall script, it was difficult to build any empathy for that character and the circumstances that he faced. So while the intent may have been meritorious, I thought its execution was flawed, almost haphazard. Overall, I thought that Free State of Jones suffered from verbosity. It was too long. Notwithstanding the magnitude of the story, they, they should have cut it back. And I reckon that would have done wonders. Because it's an important story, but it's quite convoluted. And that's, it seems to sort of have one ending and then another and then another kind of thing. So not bad. But not great. Free state of Jones, six and a half to seven out of ten.
1: Okay. Now, uh, I need to issue a correction, Alex. Yes. When Harry met Sally. Thank you. Number thirty-six. Good man. Okay. As it should be. Yeah. Good. Okay. And I know, I, I know we're already. Well, I know we're already over time, but I do want to throw in something else that I have discovered on this list as well. Tucked yeah. away tucked away down the bottom at number ninety five you'll get you 'll spot the irony in this i 'm sure straight away tucked away down the bottom at number ninety five uh, they have uh, one of neil diamond 's few cinematic excursions, the jazz singer
0: oh really okay
1: yeah. should never be remade, it says according to the, the list on on dot com The problem with it of course is that the one thousand nine hundred and eighty version of the jazz singer yes. was a remake of the one thousand nine hundred and twenty seven al jolson first ever Talkie, uh, which had also been remade previously in 1959 and a TV uh, movie in 1959. So I I find that one
0: striking me just as a little bit odd. Anyway, let us continue on, shall we? Well, I suppose what what one can say is if they saw that as the quintessential version of the jazz singer... But it wasn't! Yes, but again, the people. Bear in mind, this is the the, the great unwashed. All of us, the <laughs> public, having our say. That doesn't make us right. <laughs> does not make us right. Democracy That's, is wasted on some people. Exactly. Red Billabong is an Australian movie rated M A here, and it's 113 minutes. And I'm really, really sorry to have to say to you, Chris, it is absolutely ghastly. Really. Absolutely. In fact,
1: uh, is twenty sixteen gonna go down as the year where oh, more shocking Australian well, movies were made than any other?
0: Chris, on Friday yeah. I saw another Australian movie. Right <laughs> and and I'm this morning, that Australian movie was voted the best film by one set of cinematic film festival type people, Mm. it was given $100,000. Why would it ever have been given that? Because I thought it was also a piece of trash. So we will talk about, I'm not even mentioning its name, we will talk about that. I've seen three shocking Australian movies within three weeks.
1: Okay, now a few weeks ago we spoke about Down Under. It is the first movie you have ever given a zero to. So we now actually finally have a benchmark. Okay, We we have a benchmark. Red Billabong. Where does it compare?
0: Well, Nick Marshall, played by Dan Ewing from Home and Away, and his estranged brother Tristan, Tim Pocock, are drawn into a world of secrets and lies when their grandfather's enormous outback property passes into their hands. Old wounds are reopened, Tristan's friends arrive and strange noises emanate from a nearby river watering hole. There's a visit from an Aboriginal elder and a meet-and-greet with an unscrupulous property developer who wants to purchase the land, right? As I say, it's passed into these brothers' hands from the grandfather, this enormous outback property, and the property developer wants to purchase the land. The brothers wonder what they should do. So that's really the storyline. The producers in a statement about the movie say it's unapologetically a popcorn thriller, an action flick. And I'll give you a quote. We want to give the audience a chance to feel claustrophobically trapped in this world where humans can become spirits, where everyone is not who they seem and where a terrifying monster lurking in the bush can be real. Poppycock, I say, Christopher. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out what that means. Yes, they fail to deliver. And now for a bit more inspiration, let me turn to the first-time director and writer and his thoughts. His name is Luke Spark, which this movie doesn't have. Oh, anyway. oh, oh. He says he's lived with this script for a decade. He should have lived with it for a few more. <laughs> he worked diligently to tighten the plot. Really? Really? Is this the best he could have done? He, he worked diligently not only to tighten the plot but to amp up the pace and update the technology and cultural references. He has, this is his quote, I've imagined every conceivable angle. I know the characters in the story inside and out and cannot wait to bring it to life on the screen. I wish he had. (laughs) I really do. Because then I wouldn't have had to sit through this drivel. It is nonsense. I understand it's C or D grade schlock fair that for all intents and purposes appears to have been cooked up in in some teenager's backyard. I'm genuinely embarrassed that the state of Australian filmmaking has come to this. The script is appalling, as is much of the acting which clearly suffered from the bilge that the actors were forced to work with. (laughs) The the story, by the way, which is mighty mighty convoluted, gets worse and worse the longer it progresses. It's simply tortuous to watch, and all the more so because it's unnecessarily drawn out, and then some. I was praying for it to end, Chris, but it didn't. Oh, did it keep going? More nonsense, piled on more nonsense, fed by a fantasy with links to Indigenous Australia. I simply couldn't care less. I can only hope that neither will any of our listeners, or should they? I plead, give Red Billabong a miss. This is two hours of your life that will leave you scarred psychologically. It's Look, pretentious crap is too mild a description. (laughs) Pretty cinematography and tranquil rural surrounds cannot sugarcoat what I regard as one of the darkest days for Australian cinema. That is Red Billabong.
1: Dare I ask? Yeah, zero. another, oh, no, another one! Zero.
0: Another one! No. Oh! Shocking. I mean, it would have been in negative territory, bar for the fact that it, it had some pretty pictures. No, it's shocking. It is uh, real terrible.
1: All right, I, I want to get onto the live stage play in a second, but I, I need to ask, if you had to choose... You're going to hate me for this question. Yes. If you had to choose between Red Billabong and Down Under.
0: It's kind, of, it's kind of choosing between friends you abhor. You know, friends you don't want to spend any time with becoming non-friends.
1: Which which leg would you like to have amputated?
0: This is not a fair question. Wait till I, wait till I tell you about the third Australian movie. You can have that discussion then, Chris.
1: <laughs> Okay. You have to think about it and have an answer whereby you rank what, may sound like, what sounds like possibly the first, second, and now the third movie you're going to give zero to uh, of all time. Uh,
0: uh, seriously, I wanted Luke Spark to – I don't know who he showed it to, but if people were being honest with him, then I reckon they would have either said don't put it out or change the script or tighten the script or do something – but I can't believe he sat with us for 10 years and nobody told him that. Seriously, I'm just I'm just mortified.
1: I've spotted the tagline on IMDb now. An ancient Australian legend has now been unleashed. See, I could have done the voiceover. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. let, let's leave that at a zero for Red Billabong. And Now, I, I mentioned this at the start. Around the world in 80 days, it won the Academy Award. I think it was 1956. I haven't looked that up. Yeah. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture and is Picture. universally regarded as the worst movie to mm-hmm. ever win Best Picture. So how yeah. does it how does it go on stage in 2016?
0: It won a few Oscars, did it not? It won about five.
1: Could have done. I haven't looked it up. I'll, I'll look it up while you tell you us about this stage production. Uh,
0: this, this is on at the Alex Theatre. They've taken my name in Melbourne. And there was merriment aplenty on opening night. It was last night, in fact. And this is the Australian premiere of this epic adventure adapted by Toby Hulse, based upon the novel by Jules Verne, directed by Terence O'Connell, starring Ian Stenlake, Pia Miranda and Grant Pirro. So three very big names. The trio plays 39 characters and visits seven countries in about one and a half hours. Wow. Not bad work if you can get it. They, they use narration that was popularised by authors like Charles Dickens. You know, Dickens took to... Victorian era lecture halls to perform his work, right? I mean, they, they, this was what authors did, and the action is presented in the style of British music hall acts, and featuring cross dressing and vaudeville flourishes. So, uh, flourishes rather. So, so there's a lot. It's very different in that regard, because you don't see a lot of this sort of work. The the director readily admits <laughs> this sort of madcap take on Verne's globe trotting classic. Was a heap of fun to pull together. And you step back in time to the 19th century and witness stampeding elephants, raging typhoons, and runaway trains. As a fearless adventurer called Phileas Fogg, Ian Stenlake, and his faithful manservant, Pass. Now, I, I'm going to mispronounce the name, but. Passepartout. That's it. Well done. Played by Pia Miranda, set out to win an outrageous wager. And that involved circling the globe. So from London to Bombay, Yokohama to San Francisco, you unhe- this was unheard of at the time in only 80 days, involving all manner of transport. So carriages and railways and steamers and indeed elephants. And along the way, they encountered danger, unexpected delays and romance. Hot on their heels is a relentless Scotland Yard detective, Inspector Fix, Grant Pirro, who believes... That Phileas Fogg may well have been responsible for perpetrating a dastardly crime. £40,000 in freshly minted Bank of England notes was stolen and a guard brutally murdered. The prime suspect is the perfect English gentleman with magnificent teeth. Yes, indeed, the Chompers. Or is it the Choppers? The Chompers with an M. All this lunacy starts at 11.22am Wednesday, October the 2nd, 1872 at number 7 Savile Row in Burlington Gardens, which happens to be a street in Mayfair in central London. So if slapstick comedy is your bent, you will have plenty to appreciate and applaud. And many were cackling so loudly they were all but crying. I thought the woman sitting alongside me, Chris, would need resuscitation. Such was her total engagement with the hijinks on stage. You've got this large creative clock-themed background courtesy of set designer Marinda Backway. Impeccable costume design by Lucy Wilkins. And, of course, against all of this, our intrepid adventurers certainly make their mark. Sound and lighting are integral to the success of the production. David Ellis, responsible for crisp, clear, highly evocative sound. And Jason Beauviard, the latter, being the lighting, readily changing the mood. Toby Hulse, by the way, a playwright and director who specialises in devising theatre for family audiences, and here he's woven a little piece of magic which allows the actors to strut and pout and revel in silliness and spectacle. For all of that, and notwithstanding the flawless performances, I cannot say Around the World in 80 Days sent me into a state of delirium. My wife and I were bemused by the audience's overwhelmingly positive reaction to what they were seeing because we didn't feel we were in on the joke. We actually thought the whole thing was pretty daft. My wife said, although she smiled a few times, it irritated her. And so we didn't tap into the show's joyful, frenetic exchanges. Due to the repetitious nature of the shenanigans, I found myself counting down the days until we reached the climax. All that suggests is that our sense of humour clearly wasn't in sync with those around us. But by all means, you judge for yourself, should you wish, because the revelry will continue at Alex Theatre in St Kilda until the 4th of September. I am giving Around the World in 80 Days... A six out of ten.
1: Now, if you can't catch it at the Alex Theatre, you can catch it at g in Geelong for a short season uh, in the middle of September. It will then have one-off a one-off show at the Muralbach Community Centre and a couple of shows at the Whitehorse Centre in Nunawading. you can find out more at Around the World in Eighty dayscomau dot au. Use the number eighty, not the word eighty. Uh, Around the World in Eighty Days, the musical. Alex, it was nominated for eight Oscars. It won five, including best. Best Writing, Best Music, Best Film Editing, Best Cinematography and Best Picture. It also won Best Dramatic Motion Picture uh, for Michael Todd at the Golden Globes. It won Best Motion Actor in a Comedy Musical Film for Canton Flaur, who played uh, Passpartout. It also picked up the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Picture and many other things, but it is still oft referred to by many people as the worst film to ever win the Best Picture Academy Award. Mind you... I'd still quite happily win the Best Picture of Academy Award and have and be told it was the worst film to ever win it because at least it won it. Exactly,
0: and look, do you like slapstick or do you not?
1: I do like slapstick, but I, I don't know about a full stage show in slapstick because it does tend to, after a while, you, you tend to, to to wear a little thin.
0: You, you know where I'm coming from. I do, and look, I I suppose there has been some. There have been a few movies that are slapstick. I remember seeing one not so long ago, I can't remember its name, probably 18 months ago or so that I quite enjoyed. But uh, this just, it, to me, it was kind of, there was so much frenetic activity happening, and because you had three actors on stage and you had a few props, et etc., et cetera, it, it to me appeared to be more of the same. It didn't really matter all that much, and, and that's why I didn't really care too much for it, notwithstanding all the effort, because there was a great deal of energy, and there was a small theatre, that, and, that, boy, there were some A-list celebrities there last night, let me tell you. There were lots of people in who, who would be known to to the people that we're speaking to uh, who who you know, obviously got the invites and came along and they had smiles on their faces. So I think I was in the minority along with my wife. But, I mean, I just call it as I see it, and it wasn't my cup of tea. This week, by the way, next week is going to be a very hard one for me. I am seeing a different stage play or musical on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night and Saturday night. I don't think I've ever done that. So in the space of eight days, in eight days, Chris, I'm going to be seeing six shows.
1: Well, maybe we should do live theatre first as a special one-off next week.
0: Are we going to change the? Well, it's not going to be called movies first. It's going to be theatre first, is it? Well, I think we should do that next week. Why not? Absolutely. And then we might do a special movie version. So we'll, we'll give an added, that'll give people an added impetus to listen to us twice next week.
1: <laughs> Anything to boost the numbers. Alex First, we'll let you go. We'll catch up again in a few days' time. A
0: pleasure as always, sir. Bye now. You've been listening to Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and
1: iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers and top secret military operations.
0: I'm Jamie Rennell.